welcome to the Division G podcast series. Launched in 2014 by the AERA Graduate Student Executive Committee, these podcasts provide an added medium to highlight scholarship, discuss contemporary issues, and start a conversation among Division G members in the greater community. Throughout the year, we will release podcasts leading up to the annual Spring Conference. For more information on our participants and additional podcasts, please visit aeradivg.wordpress.com. You can also keep up to date with Division G graduate students by joining our Facebook group, AERA Division G Students Social Context of Education. Thank you, and enjoy the conversation. Amanda and Ricky Lynn, thank you for joining us. Today we'll be discussing how to navigate the AERA annual meeting, as well as the DC area. Welcome. Can you please introduce yourself, your area of scholarship, and a bit about your role within Division G? Absolutely. My name is Amanda Sugimoto, and I am currently finishing up my doctorate at the University of Arizona. And I am interested in the experiences and access of English learners, particularly in low-incident schools where there uh, really aren't that many English learners and they're just learning how to work with these students. And I have worked on the Graduate Student Executive Council. This is my second year with Division G, and I am part of the Campus Liaisons Program. Hi, my name is Ricky Lynn Archibek. I'm a second year PhD student at the Teachers College at Arizona State University. This is actually my first year as a part of the Division G Executive Committee. I also work as a part of the Campus Liaisons Group. In terms of my research interests, I'm broadly interested in American Indian education, uh, but more specifically, I look at the cultural and political dynamics of education for American Indian students living both on and off the reservation. Thank you uh, for introducing yourself. Um, We're very excited to have you, and we hope that this podcast will allow all of our viewers to better navigate the Washington, D.C. area, as well as the AERA annual meeting. So how did you two first come to be involved with AERA? This is actually going to be my fourth time attending. This is Amanda. I feel like when I first started going to AERA, I was very overwhelmed, but it's a great experience. Um, And I first started going to AERA at the encouragement of my advisor, and she actually let me be a co-presenter with her my first year as a first-year grad student, which was scary, but an amazing experience. And then since then, I've been able to present my own work as well as work with other projects every year. Uh, And like I said, I'm a a second year student at ASU. And so last year was actually my first year going to ARA. When I first was accepted into the program, my advisor at ASU, she really encouraged me to join ARA. And I was a part of the proposal writing uh, process before I even started my program. Um, So it was kind of nice to have that early start. And then the project that we were working on I was accepted to a roundtable session. So last year, during my first year going, I was able to present, which like Amanda said, is pretty overwhelming, but at the same time, it's a really great experience. So, and I think that's the thing with ARA in general, it's such a big conference that it can be overwhelming. Um, But if you figure out how to kind of navigate your way through the big conference and find kind of your niche in different areas, Um, then it becomes a really great resource for you to learn new things and to make connections. Yeah, I think it's very important to get comfortable in the conference, to know that you will be overwhelmed, but that 
if you plan ahead, it'll definitely be a lot easier. So in line with today's podcast content, I'd like to ask you a few questions about preparing for the AERA meeting. Uh, Just to, to get started, one of the first things that we think about is what are the best options for rooming or what are some different options for rooming that people might not generally think about? So I met a woman recently, a faculty, a professor who is at Portland State, and she said that she always stays at hostels. She not, she doesn't stay in the conference hotels anymore because she's found over the years that it's a great opportunity not only to save money, and I think that's important for graduate students and just generally, but also she thinks it's a, as she's gone to these conferences over the years, she's realized that it can you can kind of burn out staying in the hotel conference hotels all the time because you are always around kind of immersed in that conference environment but staying at the hostels you have the opportunity not only to meet people who are attending the conference but just people who are there in the city as tourists or for whatever reason Um, and she said it's a great way to kind of keep a little balance and separate yourself a little bit from the conference for a while and then come back to it because we're there all day so I haven't tried doing the hostel route, but I think it's a great idea and I want to try it next year. I think that's a great alternative to the normal conference hotels that you hear about from emails and from people at your university. Another thing I've, I know, I haven't done it, but I know several people who have used like Airbnb. When you're looking for rooming, I think it's nice to at least have one other person that you can share a room with um, and even more depending on what your budget is and how comfortable you are with people. I think once you get to like three or four people in a, in a room, it gets a little bit cozy and sometimes it becomes a little bit overwhelming because you're with people all day long and you want to go back to your hotel and kind of be able to relax a little bit. But obviously that just depends on how much funding you have and kind of what your budget looks like for the conference. But I think the best thing is to make sure that whoever you stay with, if you choose to have a roommate, that it's someone that you're, you feel comfortable with, that you know that you kind of have the same schedule in a way. Obviously, you don't have to be going to the same things all the time, the same uh, presentations and things like that. But it is nice to be there with someone who has a similar schedule and that is going to be kind of respectful of the way that you like to do things. Um, So I think that's an important thing to think about. But I also have seen different things where graduate students from different universities have connected with people that maybe they don't know, but from with graduate students from other universities. So they're able to find a roommate and save that money. Um, if they don't have someone that's going from their university. So even if you don't know someone specifically, you can make those connections outside of your university and be able to find someone to room with if that's what you're looking for. Oh yeah, and that's a great opportunity to make just not only a connection outside for the room, but also meet people from other institutions. I hadn't seen that before, Ricky, and that's cool. And one more thing, this was something my advisor told me, and she has been going for 30 plus years, but she said there's always a Marriott hotel option as part of the rooming, the hotel conferences. So if you become a Marriott member, then over time you can start collecting points and rewards and things. So she she suggested Marriott's because she said she's always seen one every year. But I'm sure there are other hotels that they do that as well. Thank you for that. I think there are a lot of different options for rooming and it can get very difficult for people to figure out, you know, where do, should I stay in a hotel? Do I get a hostel um, and other things like that? Beyond the rooming, what are some tips for preparing for the meeting, for the actual meeting, in terms of there are many different sessions, there are many different workshops that you can attend. Um, How do you plan for your meeting? One of my big things is that I always try and have my presentation done 
like a week ahead of time. That way, that week leading up to the conference, I can really look at the program and decide where I what I what I want to attend. I really try and look for when I'm picking things that I want to see, I try and look for not only things within my field, scholars that I, I, I want to meet and see their work, but I also really try to look for something because I know that if I go to just go to sessions around that, by the end of the conference, I'm burned out. Um, so I also try to look at least every day for something that is outside of my field, even just having one session where I'm going to something that isn't within, you know, what I'm pretty much immersed in all the time. Well, like Amanda said, I think if you're if you're presenting, I think it's really important to make sure that your presentation is done ahead of time. Um, obviously, you can uh, make last-minute changes when you're at the conference, but the last thing you really want to do is be rushing around and trying to figure out how to finish your presentation and what you need and doing that sort of stuff last minute. It just kind of adds to the stress. I mean, traveling and being at the conference can be overwhelming anyways, um, and having that preparation done ahead of time really makes things a little bit easier. I think the other thing is kind of knowing the names of certain people that you might want to see present. Um, it can be overwhelming if you're just trying to like find a topic that works for you. Um, but if you have certain people that maybe you've read their work um, or you're familiar with their work, then I think that makes it a little bit easier to see when they might be presenting. And I think especially as a graduate student, those are great opportunities to make connections and to meet with different, or at least introduce yourself to different faculty from other places that you might not have the chance to interact with normally. So just looking at the program ahead of time, and I think the online option or the app makes that really easy because you can search for people and see when they're presenting. And just going through and kind of making a, making a list of, of presentations that really look interesting um, or the ones that you want to make sure that you get to. To kind of go off of that too, um, I, I love the online program. I'm glad you talked about that, Ricky Lynn, because I always like to look at if I have a presentation that I'm giving, I like to look at the other papers or the other presenters, what their other presentations are, not just when they're doing with me, because I find, you know, they're obviously we were connected for a reason. So I want to see where, where else they're presenting. Um, and then it kind of goes out as well from there because I can look at who they're presenting with. Um, so I found some really interesting sessions that way. Um, that I probably wouldn't have found because it's just a huge program and I don't know everybody's name to look for. Um, but kind of looking at that, um, those removed steps of who I'm presenting with, who I was paired with, um, and then where they're presenting later on and who they're presenting with is kind of a neat way to find other sessions to look at and um, find new ideas out there. What are some tips, and this can be as general or as specific as you want, but what are some tips that you would recommend for newcomers uh, in preparing for the meeting? I would say my biggest thing, I think the first year that I went, I felt like I had to go to a presentation every single session. Um, and for me, at least, it was just too much. By the end of the day, my brain was totally, completely mushy. And I wasn't really, it wasn't a productive use of my time. Um, I think that if there are, I mean, of course, every single session, there's there's going to be someone that you want to see, there's going to be a presentation you want to go to. Um, but you also have the opportunity to look at their work outside of them presenting it. Um, you can look at the repository on ARA, you can look at their work um, through your Google Scholar or however you access their articles. Um, and for me, at least, I needed to have just maybe one session where I wasn't going to a uh, presentation just because I needed to unplug. Um, and I think that as I've talked to other 
um, people who've been doing these this meeting for many, many years, they say that's really important is to have that time um, just to take a step back uh, for yourself as well. Um, I also, I mean, we go to really cool cities and I think that just even doing one, one hour touristy thing is fantastic. Um, but also when you're there at the meeting, you wanna be present in the moment and not thinking about um, your work or I have to finish my presentation, I have to do this paper when I get back. I mean, that's hard to do because we're so busy, um, but really taking the opportunity to listen to what other um, people in the field are doing and you can get, um, not only make wonderful connections, but also really great ideas for where you wanna take your work in the future. So um, taking that time to really think about um, what other people are doing and then what that means for you moving forward as well, I think is important. So talk to your, I guess what I'm trying to say is talk to your advisors and talk to people who've been doing this for many, many years because they have ideas of different types of sessions and different um, traditions that AIA has always done and different um, uh, meetings and business meetings, things like that, that you should go to that maybe as a first year uh, or second year attendee, you don't really know about. So really trying to soak up that knowledge from other people as well. What are the things that you always make sure you go to? Um, business meetings are a fantastic way to meet people within your division that may be um, in a less formal setting. Um, I think there's more conversations after the business meetings and then also at the receptions. Um, I think they're a great way. And it's something that I hadn't thought about going to, but I started going in my second year and I've met a lot of um, amazing scholars and just people who are in the in the division, Div, Div G, who are work, doing amazing things. Um, so that's another great way to network and make connections. I think the business, like you said, the business meetings are really good because you can make connections there too. Um, but another thing, I mean, we're all graduate students and we all have a pretty tight budget, is that most of them are followed by receptions. Um, and so anytime you can go to those things, there is food and different things that you can get there. Um, so if your budget is a little bit tight, then you're able to, you know, get some food. There's so many different receptions and so many different places that you can go that when I went for the first time last year, uh, my advisor kept joking with me saying, you could actually go the whole time without having to pay for food because there's so many different things. Not that I did that, but uh, there are so many different places that you can go. And I think that's important for people to know because I think as a first-time student going, you're not really sure what to expect and you don't know where to go or, or what to do. But that's what those things are for, you know, to make connections and to do things like that. So I think that's important. I agree. And go early if you're going to eat too, because it'll get all the good stuff will be taken early. <laughs> I think one last thing too is that if you are presenting, to not schedule to go to a session like right before or right after. Because right before you're gonna be like trying to make sure you have things ready and make sure you're in the right spot. So don't like plan to go to any sort of session or, or presentation right before yours. And then right after you'll just be so relieved that you're Kind of like done or continuing those conversations if you are in like a round table um that you're gonna excuse me you're gonna want that time to to just kind of like de-stress after you're done that is such good advice really really good advice yeah and i always and this is very nerdy and i'm a little embarrassed to admit this but i always go to the room that i'm presenting in before I go. So if I get in a day early and I'm presenting the next day, I'll just go and look at the room itself. I don't know why, but it makes me feel a little less 
nervous and a little more prepared. I know how big the room is. I know kind of the capacity. I get a feel for where I'm going to be presenting. Um, and I'm sure nobody else would ever have to do that. But that's a little trick that I found just with the nerves, especially when I first started presenting there, because in some ways, you know, that imposter syndrome, I thought at least that, oh, I can't believe that I'm going to be up here talking about, you know, my work and I'm only a first, second year grad student. But that helped me a lot is just seeing the room and kind of being familiar with what it looked like. But then also having that time, like you said, Ricky Lynn, afterward, just to de-stress and continue those conversations. So not having a session planned right after, I think, is huge. What steps do you take to create future collaborations and to um, to integrate yourself with uh, current projects, maybe at institutions that are not your own, or to create new projects based on the workshops you attend, uh, the roundtables that you participate in? For me. Um, what I like to do is I try, and if there are people that I've had really um, generative discussions, it seems like there might be a collaboration possibility in the future. I really try to contact them again when I'm at AERA, just as a quick email or, you know, I'd love to discuss work further. And I think I was thinking this could be an opportunity for a collaboration. I found that it's, I, I like to do it quickly because I feel that um, then they have this kind of paper trail of this conversation that you've had. Like I said, you meet lots of people and you're talking to lots of people. So it's nice to still kind of keep yourself in the forefront of their mind, particularly if there's somebody you really would like to collaborate with in the future. And um, I've found uh, sometimes with really well-established scholars, it's they're very busy and it's they may not respond as quickly to that type of thing. But when talking with people that are making their name and they're really uh, new in academia sometimes they're a little more fast to respond and say oh yes i would absolutely love to do a cross-institutional collaboration let's talk more about it um, so those are just some of the things that i've kind of picked up and following up with these conversations yeah i think it's important to just start the conversation it's not ever going to lead to a collaboration or or any sort of connection um, if you don't start that conversation so if you you know start the conversation there, and then, like Amanda said, just reach out as soon as possible. That's always really helpful. Or even if you have some time after the session and there's a conversation going, just kind of you know, saying, do you have time to go continue this conversation over coffee or something like that, um, that's always really helpful. But I think that's an important point, too, about you know, new and emerging scholars often have a little bit more, more time and respond a little quicker than some of the established scholars. But something else, too, is maybe sometimes you'll meet people who are working with those established scholars. So they could be other graduate students who are working with those scholars that you're interested in working with. So kind of talking to those other graduate students, see how they make those connections or what they're working on or how they're working on it, because those can, can lead to bigger collaborations as well. Now I would like to transition to our next segment, Navigating the Washington, D.C. Area. With us today is Christopher Nellum, a Washington, D.C. resident an AERA and Division G member. Chris, would you mind giving us a short introduction about yourself? Sure. Um, so my name is Chris Nellum. I am a, I'm currently a, a senior researcher at the American Council on Education. ACE is the coordinating body for all sectors of higher education. So we do a number of things. The organization does some work around leadership development, we also do some lobbying and advocacy work on behalf of colleges and universities. 
And then I work in the Center for Policy Research and Strategy, which is our policy research arm of the organization. So in that work, uh, most of my work is focused on issues of race, equity, and inclusion on college campuses. And so I run several projects that cover those topics. I also do some work in our leadership research portfolio. Um, and I've been at ACE now for a little over two years um, and been living in DC um, for about that length of time as well, although I was in DC previously as, a, as an intern at ACE actually as well. Thank you for that. Um, and to go ahead and get started, uh, I guess my first question for you would be, what are some must-dos while you're in DC? Yeah, so I think there's, I mean, DC is a great city. Actually, um, AERA's meeting is at a perfect time in in DC. It's right before um, the humidity sets in. Um, DC is known in the summer to be very humid and hot, but in April it will be, I think, really comfortable and pleasant. So I think it's a really perfect time to be in the city. And, and as far as must dos, I think the number one thing for me is to just be a tourist. Get out and check out the National Mall. You can see the Lincoln Memorial, um, the, the MLK Memorial. You can see the Capitol Building, um, the White House. Also, because of it is this time of year, I would strongly suggest getting down um, and seeing the Tidal Basin. ARA's meeting, I think, is going to follow right behind um, a very, I think, special time for DC. It's when the cherry blossoms, which, are, which sort of line the Tidal Basin, um, in that area, um, they're at their peak. And so right now, the city, we're, we're getting warmer very quickly. And so for those of you who don't know, there's, I don't even know how many cherry blossoms in the city, but they were a gift from um, Japan back in, 19, in the early 1900s. And in April is when sort of they mark, they bloom, all the cherry blossoms uh, bloom, and sort of marks the beginning of spring in DC. So um, I would definitely recommend getting down to the tidal basin and seeing those. It's really, it's gorgeous. Um, and I don't know if you can see anything like that anywhere else. Also, I will note that I know folks will be primarily busy with the meeting, but there's also the National Cherry Blossom Festival. So there's tons of events that are going to be going on in the city that sort of revolve around the cherry blossoms. There's musicals and performances and cultural events. Um, most are free. You can check out plenty of those on, I'm sure, the Cherry Blossom Festival website. Um, other things that I would suggest are the Smithsonian Museums. There are several of those, um, including the zoo. Um, there are some down by the National Mall. Um, there are others sort of sprinkled around the city, but um, those are all free, which is fantastic. Um, also, one another museum that is not free, but also I think people love is the International Spy Museum. Super cool. They sort of talk to you about um, the evolution of the art of spying over the years, and it's just really cool to learn about. So that's in the sort of Chinatown area of the city. Um, other areas of the city I think are cool to check out um, is the U Street area. It's like U, the letter U. Um, it's, a, it's a part of town that used to be known as um, the Black Wall Street. I think with sort of all the gentrification in DC, I think. U Street is one of the areas that's trying to hang on to their culture and heritage, um, particularly around African-American culture in the city. So that's definitely a cool area to check out. I would also check out Georgetown. It, you know, Georgetown University is over there, but there's also a, a waterfront and shopping area that I know people really enjoy. 
And then finally, I think if there are any runners coming to AERA, which I'm sure there are, I would just take this opportunity to, you know, take a run around the National Mall and the Tidal Basin. It's a beautiful, beautiful scenery and I think a really good, good run. And you can see a lot of the city sort of, it's sort of cool, you know, running by all of that history. So those to me are my must-dos. There's some, you know, there's a ton of other things to do, but I think those are some of the, some of the big highlights. Yeah, I think uh, there are definitely many things to do in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, something that people might be wondering is, what would be the best ways to get around? What are the best forms of transportation once you're in uh, D.C.? I think D.C., I think get out and walk. It's a very walkable city. I'm trying to remember where the, the conference hotel is, but I think it's, I think, near the convention center. So you can definitely get out and walk around there. You're not, you won't be too far from Chinatown. So there are some interesting things there. It's a neat place to sort of hang out. There are restaurants and other things to do there. Um, also, uh, the Metro, for those folks who may not be from bigger cities, the Metro to me, I'm a big public transportation sort of fanatic. And I think the Metro is a great way to get around. Um, some DCers might disagree because they, it's we use it so much. I think folks feel that it's unreliable, but it's actually great. It's affordable. Um, it's mostly reliable, despite what you hear. And I think there's a stop. The convention center stop actually will be right by AERA, by by the convention center and the hotel. So definitely get out and walk. Definitely feel free to, I think, check out the metro. It'll get you to most places around town. I mentioned U Street earlier. The metro will take you right up there. You can also use the metro to get down to the National Mall and to get down to the Smithsonian's museums that I mentioned just a second ago. Also, you can use it to get to the zoo, you know, most places in town. There's a few places where the metro cannot get you. One of those places is Georgetown, which I also mentioned. So metro also runs a bus system that I think is also really fantastic. Um, there are some particular buses called the circulator buses that are part of that system, but they sort of do these loops you know, that their name suggests. They sort of circulate and go, go in circles um, to specific areas of town. So one of those will take you to Georgetown. Um, one of those will also take you down to the National Mall as well. So you, you have two choices to get down there. So yeah, I think definitely get out and walk. It's a great uh, walking city. Definitely check out and use the Metro. Um, it charges it's it's relatively affordable. It charges based on distance, so you can pay anywhere from two to, I think, four seventy five each way um, to get where you're going. And then the bus is even cheaper than the metro, actually, and is probably around a one seventy five or one fifty to get uh, where you need to be one way. Well, thank you for that. Um, I think uh, you know the best way to travel is always something people are thinking about whether they should take the metro or the bus. Um, Definitely for things that are within walking distance, that might be the best bet for people to explore the area. Uh, something else people might be wondering are, where are the best places to eat? Or what would you recommend for people um, to try while they're in the D.C. area? Yeah, so there's good food in D.C. There's, I'm a foodie. Um, love food. I'm actually, my partner and I, uh, she and I are trying to get, there's this list, which I suggest I strongly um, suggest finding. Uh, it's the top 100 restaurants in DC. Um, they range in sort of price, but I think that's a great sort of overview of some things in the city. 
that aren't sort of the ones that I'm going to cover right now, but I think that those are some good choices as well. So really good eating in the DC area, but sort of the tourist spots, well, some touristy and some not. Ben's Chili Bowl is a huge, I think, tourist attraction for a number of reasons. Several presidents have been there. The Obamas have been there. Um, Ben's Chili Bowl, they have obviously chilies. They have chili dogs, um, hot sausages and half smokes and milkshakes, all sorts of stuff. It's actually a historical landmark in in the U Street corridor area. Good food there. I actually think they're open all night, so it's a great place to check out. This isn't my next one. Isn't necessarily a place, but um, one of the things about DC that I'm not sure a lot of folks realize is that DC has one of probably the largest concentration of Ethiopians outside of Ethiopia. So um, really good Ethiopian food. If you've never had it, I, I strongly suggest trying it. It's, I think, good flavors, a unique experience and how you eat the food. And so definitely check out, It's there's an area that some folks call Little Ethiopia. And I believe that's like the Ninth Street corridor up also by U Street. There are plenty of good places up there to check out. What else? Uh, Busboys and Poets, I know, is a, also another place that folks enjoy. That's also in the U Street area, just uh, by coincidence. It's a restaurant. It's a bookstore and lounge that I know. A lot of academics and researchers actually in D.C. You can find them there quite often, sort of doing work or reading. Or they do an open mic night. They do you know, poetry slam nights. All cool things to sort of check out while you're in the area. And the food is good. So that's also a good choice. Yeah, I think those are my three that um, I would suggest folks get to. With that, I would like to thank Amanda, Ricky Lynn, and Chris for joining us for our fourth podcast, Navigating the AERA Annual Meeting and the Washington, D.C. area. You can find links and more information on Amanda, Ricky Lynn, and Chris on the AERA Division G blog at aeradivg.wordpress.com.